Hi, I'm Amjad Karim. In this episode, I'm speaking to Dr. Tim Dunlop and Professor John Quiggin. Uh, both are academics from the University of Queensland. Uh, both are quite well-known authors and, and bloggers, and they've thought quite a lot about how technology is changing the way we work and also changing the way opportunities are available to people in society. And given the developments that we're seeing in AI recently and the accelerating pace of progress, I think it's a very timely and important conversation. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Hi, John. Uh, hi, Tim. Um, so, so, Tim, what I want to talk about today with you was really about, and, and, with, and with John, was a lot of the work that you've done, Tim, is about writing about recently, at least, how work will change in the future because of AI, because of the technology that's being adopted. We're making things a lot more, a lot more productive, a lot more efficient. So how do we use that to make an environment where people can share their benefits more equally? John, um, you've written a lot about how a lot of the economic benefit generated today from today's technologies like AI and machine learning is concentrated amongst people who, or businesses or organizations who have access to the data to be able to deploy those algorithms. And to deploy those algorithms at scale so they can make very little income on a, on a single transaction. But when you've got billions of transactions or billions of events, you can generate some return, right? So that kind of leads to a natural tension between the two. So today I thought we could just discuss that. Tim, I thought maybe if we start with you in terms of your, your hypothesis on the future of work and how that might change in the future. Hi, guys. Glad to be here. I guess my concern about the future of work has been the rising use of technology, which is often presented in the form of a robot's going to take my job. And I've always been somewhat suspect about that construction of the argument. Um, I think it's certainly true that technology does lead to the displacement of labour, but there's also the concomitant creation of new jobs because of the technology. What concerns me is the nature of the technology that we have at the moment is such that the new jobs that are created are terrible jobs. They're precarious, they're unprotected, they come with none of the kind of the usual structures that used to exist that we sort of think of as the golden age of post-World War II work environment. It was never a golden age, of course, but relative, mm. you know, there was there was a certain level of security. There was a, there were certain structures in place because of the strength, the relative strength of unions in those days. There was, you know, workers were somewhat protected. A lot of that has disappeared because of the nature of the technology. So I guess my concern, and I'm and I'm I'm positive this is John's concern as well, is that the way the technology works, which involves concentrating ownership and therefore concentrating wealth, means it also concentrates power, takes power away from workers and leads to this degradation of the jobs market in general. So, you know, whether or not a robot will take your job um, is, is less of a concern than the nature of the work that is left. It is more precarious. You know, everything from content management, et cetera, um, can be quite piecemeal sort of work and, and quite um, difficult psychologically working in those environments as well. So I think those are the sorts of issues um, that worry me about the future of work. And John, do you, what, what, do you have anything to, to, to add to that? 
Sure. I think, I mean, there's partly what the technology is, but I suppose part of my view of this is simply disruption favours whoever has power. So if we're going along in a certain way, things don't change very much. If you change them, uh, if you change them in a situation where unions have a lot of power, they can use that change to extract benefits. Mm -hmm. uh, if you change a situation where management has the power, they can use it to get rid of things they've wanted to get rid of for a long time. And that's been the characteristic of the you know, neoliberal or whatever area you want to call it. I think we're starting to see pushback against that uh, around the world, that um, uh, the promises of that uh, of that neoliberal program have, have been pretty much discredited in one form or another, uh, one form or another, that, that the politics of it have changed, but, of course, the power balance is still very much what's been built up over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, very much in favour of, of employers. Uh, so, so that's one aspect of it. I guess I wanted to mention you know, that there is, in terms of the actual technology, this sort of cyclical process that uh, when the internet came along first, it was incredibly democratising, oversold, but there's no doubt that it gave a lot of room to people who didn't have it before and and the traditional gatekeepers hated the idea. We saw a bunch of attempts in the 1990s to create wall gardens, America Online, Yahoo, uh, portals and so forth, mm -hmm. which were all kind of swept away. Uh, then Facebook and Twitter in particular, but all that crew came in, and suddenly, quite suddenly in the case of Twitter, but, but more slowly in the case of Facebook, we're, suddenly, we're seeing that shift back again. So that's inside the technology, but it also is, shows that things can't, can, can change, that uh, uh, potentially if you piss off enough people at once, as Elon Musk has done, uh, you create the conditions for a alternative to be built up at scale. And so uh, having been through this cycle two or three times, I don't want to proclaim victory, but I think I'm much more optimistic about all this stuff than I was six months or a year ago. Okay. One of the things I wanted to ask, I guess, uh, both of you was, I guess it's easier to automate simple tasks or or tasks that do not change so that they're predictable. It's it's much, much harder to automate or use AI to do things that are, are not so predictable. And, and, and that'd be kind of surprising. So for example, I was coming down the stairs yesterday with some with a basket of laundry thinking, oh, it'd be great if we could have a, a machine that could do this. But I dropped one of the socks. And now I have to stop. I have to pick up this uh, sock and put it in the laundry basket and then head off uh, to the washing machine, right? But teaching a machine to take into that into, into, into account is actually quite difficult. What we imagine is that's actually cleaning is a, is a low-skilled job. So when you say the jobs that are going to be left behind that aren't automated, that people are ending up doing, do you think that's because there's an economic reason so people just aren't interested in automating them or is it because it's just too difficult at the moment with the technology the way it is? Well, my impression is it's a combination of both. As you say, it's what's what's the old thing that they used to say? It's easy to teach a computer to do difficult things like playing chess, but you can't get them to do something a three-year-old can do. And I think that's true, and that is part of the problem. A, a lot of that is attitudinal around, you know, what, what is a skilled job, what is an essential service, um, et cetera. I, I wonder if our concepts of that changed at all because of 
the experience of COVID. The, the people that kept us alive were the uns, so-called unskilled workers working in shops and factories and packing things like shelves in supermarkets, etc. that technology couldn't do to the same extent. So I'm just wondering, maybe our conceptions of all this have changed because of COVID. I think COVID's certainly something worth talking about in terms of the future of work. I think it's had an effect on how we think about work in general. But what do you think about that, John? Well, certainly there's a huge arbitrary element of this stuff. For example, I was struck by the fact that in the old Soviet Union, most medical work was low status because it was done by women. And similarly, <laughs> when, when uh-huh. secretaries were men, it was a high state, relatively high status job. Back in the 19th century, it's not purely arbitrary, but this is true of all these things. Uh, so that's part of it. One point I want to make is when you look at the official productivity statistics, which really meant measure what's going on in the market economy, they're not doing very much at all. So in terms of AI, yeah, if AI were displacing people on a large on a large scale, we'd expect to see see that showing up as, as big improvements in productivity and that doesn't uh, that isn't happening. But uh, I suppose that one point that is important is once a robot can do something sort of, it gets very rapidly from there to you might yeah, the robots will do it all. One, one day you had a watch that sort of did a bunch of stuff and, and within four decades you have an Apple watch, I guess, but, but long before that the Swiss watch industry was reduced to some branch of jewellery that uh, anybody could pay 10 bucks and get a watch to get perfect time. Coming back to COVID, I think it really has shaken up a whole bunch of ideas about this is the way we've always done things and, and uh, nothing else will work. As I, as I say, I guess I don't know how things happen in the UK, but in Australia, on Friday, the Prime Minister was looking forward to a football match on Sunday. Uh, by Sunday, the football match had been cancelled and he said to everybody, don't bother coming into work tomorrow and, by the way, you'll be teaching your kids at school. And I think everybody would have predicted total chaos and collapse, whereas, in fact, all of those jobs, the kind of jobs that can be done over Zoom like this, just went on as if nothing had happened at all. Um, you know, the kids... Uh, wasn't there with the kids. I mean, it obviously wasn't great for them, but but people even even despite that, people managed, and herding them back to the office has been almost impossible. And so, so I mean, that's of course reinforced. I mean, made people much more aware of that difference. I think, and and obviously the fact that, oh, it's great doing your office work from home, but unless somebody comes comes by with the food and and stuff, there's uh, <laughs> you can't really manage it. John, you probably saw today that Hilda released some figures around working from home. Mm. Did you have a look at those? Yes, I did. Um, from my quick look, they seem to support what you were saying, including yeah. the gender imbalance in yes. how it impacted yes. on um, how work from home impacted yeah. on different people. Mm. And I think, I mean, although, I mean, the conversation coverage of it said, oh, you won't get most if you don't go into the office, but they were really looking at pre-COVID studies where the group of people who weren't, who were working from home was this minority. I mean, I think the, uh, yeah, in that sense, the balance of power shifted that in the past, you'd say we're holding a meeting and if you want to dial in, well, maybe we'll do something for you. Whereas now, yeah, they say we're holding a meeting. People say, well, yeah, you'll have it by Zoom or not at all because I'm not coming. But so so that, that's the impact of technology, right? So I think you were asking about the UK. I think UK was pretty similar. I think it seemed a little bit not so concerned and then things changed rapidly. Um, yeah. and very rapidly actually like we even had I remember the Champions League game with, with Liverpool they had 
thousands of Atletico Madrid fans come to Liverpool. But going going back to, uh, I guess, the future of work and the AI uh, and the use of technology, how do you think it will change? So, for example, one of the things that you've said is COVID has accelerated the move to remote working for roles that can be taken remotely. Mm-hmm. Things that have to be done physically can't move, right? So, for example, essential services were defined from like nurses, doctors, but also mm-hmm. to the refuse collectors, the, the bin men, people in shops. What do you think work will look like in, say, 20 years or even 10 years? What are the types of roles that will be dramatically changed? I mean, I'm working a lot on the idea of a four-day week, and I think the big obstacle to that has been the five-day week, which was a great achievement 70 years ago, had been around so long that people couldn't conceive anything else, both the actual workers who have been managed and, to some extent, you know, the capitalists, the shareholders, yeah, they don't care about making life easy for the managers particularly. That's run against that. And, and so we're seeing, I think, especially with tight labour markets coming out of the pandemic, uh, the push for a four-day week is really happening. So I'd expect to see that happen. I wanted to come back and say, I mean, there are jobs that absolutely have to be done physically. But you mentioned doctors. Well, you have this situation where you turn up at the doctor's office and sit there for hours while the doctor, doctor chronically overbooked runs through your, your services. And and why does that exist? Only because of a whole bunch of social institutions, that doctor's time is incredibly valuable on the other hand, that medical people won't reimburse remote services. But, but yeah, that's been shaken and I think will, will continue to be shaken. Uh, shops, so, of course, well, yeah, I, I hardly go into a shop these days. So, so there's lots of stuff. Yeah, I think we'll see competition from remote kinds of things just continuing to grow, yeah, the pandemic gave it a start, but I think we'll see that going further. The analogy of, of like doctor, or the doctors and also retail, I suppose our remote medicine probably is growing. There is some value in seeing a patient, I imagine if you're a doctor, face-to-face, because you probably pick up signals that you perhaps wouldn't, but there's a lot you can do remotely. Maybe it's also a function of how the, the trade-off between, like if you make a mistake when you buy a, a parcel from, from a, a Amazon or something, mm. you can just return it, get a refund, or maybe not get refunded. But I suppose if there's a mistake in diagnosis, even though that might be lower than it mm. would be like 20 years ago, there's it just depends on the level of risk we're prepared to accept as a society in terms of for, for different things. Like the additional value, even though it's small, generates a larger payoff for having it face-to-face. For other things, the additional value is negligible. So why wouldn't you do it? I mean, there's a lot of rational. I mean, part of the problem is there's a huge amount of rationalization in the existing ways of doing things. I mean, you see it. Take something arbitrary with voting systems. We know perfectly well that all the English-speaking countries have atrocious voting systems, but people still come up with bizarre ideas as to why, you know, for example, first past the post is a good idea. And so I suppose whenever I see stuff about water cooler conversations, I sort of think, well, actually, you know, I have been in the workforce for 40 years and I have had conversations around the water cooler. I can't remember ever having any conversation at a water cooler uh, that in any way advanced my work career in those 40 years. I mean, random stuff happens, but mm. the vast majority of useful conversations I've had have been because I say, why don't you, Tim, and me go and have a cup of coffee and talk about and chat? And we might spend 90% of the chat talking about other bloggers and how terrible they are, but, but <laughs> something gets done. Uh, but whereas randomly passing people in the corridor has never done anything for me at all. And yet, you know, this was solemnly put up as as this really big deal. Mm. 
I'm unconvinced that this is true with respect to medicine, for example. I mean, maybe yeah. doctors have subtle interpersonal skills. It's not that medical school creates them. Right. Um, they're not famous uh, for their bedside manner, are they? <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so maybe that's right, but maybe uh, just being able to do have more more appointments done more efficiently, quite over faster, would, would, would offset that. Just to speculate a little more on your original question about what happens over the next 10 yeah. years, um, I, I certainly agree with John that the four-day working week um, is something that we're moving towards, and, and I think that's a good thing. In a country like Australia, I mean, it's been happening for a long time, despite, I think, a certain level of denial amongst politicians. But, you know, we're we're a service economy. We still have politicians talking about, I don't want to live in a country that doesn't yeah. do manufacturing. But I really think, you know, those days are gone. We are a service yeah. economy. So it goes to those points that you were making about the role of technology in that for a lot of those sorts of things, especially in the healthcare area, aged care area, it's not that there's not a role for technology. It's just that a lot of the work still involves hands-on, literally hands-on human contact and involvement. So I think that increases um, or at least maintains at the rates mm. that we're going. We probably do need a bit of a mind shift at the political class level to really accept that. And then I think that has got to have kick-on effects for the way we educate people for employment, the, the emphasis we put on things. Um, and it, it, it also raises the issue of gender disparities because that, that mm. kind of service economy care work tends to be at this stage done by females done by women and that probably has to change as as a default setting as well so you know it's it's not just the technological change and I guess is this is the point that I'm making all along mm. it's how we adapt to those social changes those kind of sometimes arbitrary things that John's been talking about mm. you know we just we really have to get out of the mindset and actually mm. this has been an obsession of mine for the last 20 years is one of the areas you see this most clearly is in an area like journalism which was really completely upended by the technology digitization changed the nature of the way news was not just collected but the way news was distributed um, and understood in the public the way publics were created but there was a long established set of norms and practices around the practice of journalism within that profession and that profession hasn't come to terms at all with those no, changes that, that have arisen because of that technological change, the digitization of news. So, you know, it can be hellishly difficult to get established institutions or established professions to get their head around these sorts of changes. This is arguments I constantly find myself having with people um, about just adjusting to that. And I, I, th I think it's true of um, politics more generally, but, you know, just just the whole notion of the rise of platforms as a workspace, people working online as creators of some sort or another. I, I, I don't think it's still taken terribly seriously by governments as a sector of the community, but it's obviously a growing sector of the community. But again, yeah. you know, it's that it's that mental adjustment that established institutions and professions have to make to be able to adapt to this. And 
I, I guess, you know, the nature of the change is going to be affected by the ability of those groups to make those mental adjustments. In terms of the structure of the economy, I, I mean, when I was at school, it was essentially a goods economy. People grew stuff or dug it up. It was processed and manufactured, turned into goods in the manufacturing sector. And then the service sector basically distributed the goods, organised the money. And then there were a few bits and pieces like healthcare that didn't fit in and were shoved off. And really, that whole goods economy is now counting in even things like counting in even things like retail and so mm -hmm. forth is a minority economy, and the remaining parts using services as a catch-all is no longer right. We really need to talk about human services, which are delivered directly, right. and information services. And two things about information services: the one is, of course, they can be done remotely. The other is that there are these huge externalities that um, information, once it's created, goes out in the world, very hard to capture. And in a sense, this, this is the, the fight of the last 30 years is people trying to capture some information and charge a toll on everybody who accesses it versus the natural tendency of information to want to be free and information creators to want to get away from having to pay, pay these people. And, and as I say, we've, we've just, I think, just ending a period when the platforms had immense control, when you know, Zuckerberg and uh, the you know, Dorsey, I guess, the precursor, the owners of Twitter and, and Google were managing to get huge rents out of this stuff to one where people are kind of sick of Facebook and Twitter has imploded. But, but already before that, there were you know, things like Substack and, Me and Medium and things emerging as a, a new platform by which which was much more competitive and, and gave much more a much bigger share to creators and a much smaller share to the the proprietor okay. platform. And so so and, but all of this, no one, neither creators nor the platform holders, captures more than a tiny portion of the value that the creator. Most of it just goes out there into society and isn't really measured in the economy at all. So John, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask on that, right? But before mm. I before I get there, just talk the ambition for a four-day week, I think the ambition is also, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, is to maybe share some more of the, the gains that are made from concentrated mm. technology through through society, things like universal basic income, right? Mm. But listening to you and having worked in the area, I don't think the, the challenge isn't technological. This would be a societal challenge, right? It's mm. it's about how, how the economy is structured, what society decides is important for it. If we wanted to go to this place where you know you have four day weeks and where overall the economy is just as productive mm. and everyone's living a better quality mm. of life, how do we move to that? I find that's the the real issue, right? The issue mm -hmm. isn't technically. And the other question I do want to mm. ask is, people like myself and the people that I work with, we're technology creators. So, what can technology creators do? Or what should they consider when they're when they're doing these types of things to say, okay, how can we enable the types of things that you you've you've been talking about? Definitely a societal problem a social problem a political problem at, at the mm. end of the day I, I sort of despair a little bit that we're um, going to get much leadership from conventional political parties on this stuff because you know partly they're kind of still within those mm. you know their own sorts of silos the, the the status quo that serves them and that includes with the media as well you know they've got no interest mm. really in reforming the media it's happening anyway 
other outlets, as John's talking about, uh, are coming into existence. I was actually thinking the other day, there's, there's, there's this actual um, incredible body of alternate media in Australia that's grown up over the last 10 years. And a lot of people are working and interacting within that but you know most political discussion is still dominated by the parameters set by the mainstream media so as you say it's not a technological problem the technology is there and allowing these alternative um, workspaces and platforms and outlets and websites to be created mm. to do this sort of work but to get it taken seriously within the political class is a battle. So I think I've always kind of argued this. I've often done talks with, you know, just members of the public. And, you know, the question from concerned parents is often, you know, what should my children be studying at university? And I often say that the best thing they can do is to actually get political is to maybe join a union, maybe join a political party, you know, affect the change at that level. And that goes to technologists as well. I think the history of the technologists is that they haven't been particularly open to that sort of thing. It has been about building walls around and concentrating wealth. And the technology has kind of uh, helped that to some extent. But I think, you know, if we really want to move towards that more egalitarian sort of society where you have a four-day work and maybe a better distribution of income. This is, you know, there's a political matters at the end of the day. I actually doubt very much whether um, especially big technology companies are going to do this voluntarily. I, I think it's going to have to be regulated in some way, or I, I don't know if unions can come back to anything like the strength that they had. I doubt it very much. I think the nature, again, the nature of work doesn't necessarily lend itself to that sort of consolidation of worker power that used to happen in kind of a more manufacturing factory type of setting even though you know there's there's evidence that with uh, Amazon and Uber and uh, other platform companies um, are increasingly coming under pressure to unionize it's a hellishly difficult thing to do but you know, it, it is happening to some extent. But I think if the problems are social, then the solutions are social as well. And that includes, yeah. you know, how, how you deal with things politically. So you're looking at the five-day week. We got that from mainly a combination of unions getting it individually and then governments legislating it. But we also got it from full employment. While Australia and New Zealand, the first place to get paid hour a day, precisely because they were shorter workers. So in some sense, you know, this period of full employment and combined with the change in attitudes, the statistics might be dubious about the Great Resignation. It's pretty clear that, it's pretty clear that the employers, just as in sense, unions pushed too hard in the 60s and 70s, employers have pushed their employees too far. They're ready to walk out the door if they can get another job, and right now they can. Lots of we're seeing with the four-day week, this has been done by voluntary trials by companies. And yeah. but one of their big benefits are things like less... Yeah, not that people are producing in four days what they used to produce in five in a literal sense, but uh, they're having less turnover. And, of course, every time you lose one worker and put in a new one, you spend you know, several months bringing that person up to speed. Less sick days. I mean, that's not going to drive much in the US because they don't have sick days, but in Australia, it's just been routine. If you need to a need a day to do with the family, you take a sickie. And with four days, you can organise yourself better. So these kinds of things, I think, we're seeing uh, we're seeing as the move. But ultimately, we'll need governments 
governments to move in that direction. Even though we haven't seen the big moves, we've seen, I think, a loss of faith in neoliberalism and productivity and working hard and all that stuff, which will make this proposal in due course a political winner that will be hard to oppose. But first, we need to establish it in a bunch of places, uh, make it make it more normal and um, yeah. make it a condition that progressive employers have. So that what we're doing is dragging up the uh, dragging up the tail rather than imposing it across the board. And we first have to win it, win it locally. But so far, that's going exceptionally well. So one of the things that we're saying is that certain technologies are going to reduce the need for humans to do work. Remote working is making it easier for people to do service work without actually being physically present. Mm -hmm. So that means, in theory, you could say that there's going to be less work. And also, corporations could start opening up employment to people who aren't based in Australia or in the UK or in the in the world, in developed world, world, there's regulations about how you treat people. So your point about, well, at the moment, we've got full employment. Technically, we haven't, but in, in practice, we probably mm. do. So therefore, there's pressure for employers to take the needs of their employees into consideration. So there's more pressure for four-day week. Is there a risk that this could be a temporary phenomenon? Because actually, when you're introducing technology, you're reducing the amount of work that people need to do. You might find in a position soon that, there's, that there may not be enough. Well, one point is we're not really talking about the future here. We've had, yeah. So we yes. had a hundred years, say, from 1870 to, to 1970 or so, in which a large part of the gains of the technology were taken as, as more leisure. That completely stopped around 1980. So we've got 40 years of pretty substantial productivity growth, none of which has been given back as, as reductions in standard working hours in those countries. Yeah, it's important that it's really a shift. It really is social. That is that for those 40 years, employers have had the whip hand, managing the fact that we're panned. And as we saw during COVID, the people who love you turning up at the office and working long hours are managers because they have cushy offices, you know, probably you know, company cars, corner, you know, also a bunch of stuff that can only be delivered in an office. If you, you know, if you have a corner office with a view of the restaurant and the membership of a nice club, you can't take that home. You can't, mm. even if you have a nice house with a view of a harbour, you can't, you can't show it off to thousands of people uh, which is the attraction of, of being in a physical workplace with a hierarchy. So so in that sense, what we've seen, I think, has been um, an undermining of that, made, made poly, yeah, enabled in important respects by technology, but also just the cumulative effects of stuff we could have done 20 years ago. I mean, I was 20 years ago getting you know, living in North Queensland, getting invitations to go and talk to people in various parts of Australia, and I'd say, look, I'll do it for you remotely, and it was technically feasible, but the message would come back, look, we've looked at it and it's just too hard. We'll fly you down and put you up in a hotel, you know, pay a thousand bucks rather than rather than go to the trouble. So I just say that's partly technical progress, but it's mainly we've all acquired the social norms we needed to do this stuff. Uh, we've remembered to turn ourselves off mute and we can get you know, events like this happen more or less smoothly. And meanwhile, of course, air travel has got more and more horrible. I agree with the idea of what you talked about, the, the water cooler conversations. I, when I was younger, just being able to say hello or how are you, or just building a rapport with someone that I didn't know in the office, right? So at that particular point in time, um, I, wasn't, I didn't have a very great conversation about the problem that I was working on, right? But I built a connection with that individual that made it easier for me to approach them later on to have a more productive conversation over a coffee or in a meeting room or however it might be, right? 
how do you build those relationships or those types of connections in an environment which is you've reduced the likelihood of random connections like that right and i think if i was starting at a new company today and i was relatively junior i would really value that certainly there's a great deal of benefit from face-to-face connection in that mm-hmm. sense right the serendipity in things that you can't it's hard to hard to replicate i guess i i look at this differently because my experience has been quite different in that really for the last 20 years i have worked at home yeah. you know I, I have worked at universities and that's involved you know going in and mm-hmm. um teaching and going to stupid meetings and and, and things mm-hmm. like that but n- but not on a daily full-time basis if anything, you know, kind of the technology and the social media platforms mm. have taught us how to do precisely what you're yeah. talking about. Like I've developed enormous networks mm. of people who, like John, for instance, well, I, well, met, I, I, met, I was going to say, I met we've met twice blog, in person. Blog. We are yeah. close That's friends in important respects, certainly, certainly close collaborators in. Yeah, we have yeah, worked we, together yeah, we, on, on things. And uh, yeah, we've never met. Uh, yeah, 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 essentially, I had one social call. But the, but and, the whole relationship yeah. developed online. And, and what tends to happen is it's sort of the reverse in a way. It's sort of like I'm, I'm going to be in Sydney or Queensland where you are. Mm. Do you want to have a coffee sort of thing? And then, you know, you do make that personal contact sort of thing. It might be different in a company work environment, which I'm clearly mm. not in. Mm. But just in terms of being able to develop those relationships has, mm. has not been a problem. So much a matter of social convention. For example, I mean, just in terms of personal relationships, as I say, you know, calling somebody on the phone now is like turning <laughs> up and unannounced their house at nine o'clock at night would have been 30 years ago. In Victorian England, you'd turn up with a calling card and leave it at the door and come back another day. And now you, know, you send you, know, you send an email to establish contact and then in, you know, somebody you know, you send text messages and at some point you say, oh, look, I really need to talk to you about this. Let's have a phone conversation. And similarly, organisations, yeah, that kind of stuff, if you want if you want that to happen, yeah, you, you, we need to develop social conventions, but there's nothing magic about face-to-face in that. In a sense, phone call is, is much more human contact than the exchange of text messages. But everybody, except your very closest family relationships, everybody's now much more comfortable with text messages than they are with phone calls. I think you you talk, John, Tim, about how technology they create, they end up being in closed environments. In terms of the advice that we can give technology creators, I think the open source movement, for example, is phenomenal. Yeah. The the amount of value that's released into the world because of that, I think it's probably one of the the most important things over the last 20 or 30 years, right? In terms of the value to, to economies and the value to what people can do as societies, what people can do, right? A lot of the technology or the software that we create, especially when it comes to uh, machine learning and AI and mm. uh, search engines relies not on the code, which is really important, mm. but on the data, right? Um, yeah. And you need the two together for the for there to be a, a, a valuable mm. service or, or product, right? Yeah. Now I'm going to touch now on some of the things that you've talked about, and the concerns you have about how uh, data and technology is concentrated. Mm. Yeah. Since we talked, the whole Twitter thing has really shown that. I mean, on the one hand, of course, I mean, the classic being the sudden data dump of all the stuff about Hunter Biden's laptop, which apparently contains nude pictures of Hunter Biden, which I can't imagine being very exciting. We had some kind of assumption that what we did on Twitter followed certain rules, and now we discover at a minimum that all our email contact with Twitter, with 
where Twitter can be dumped on the public internet to score a point, I was reading one of the reasons Twitter was looking at advertising was because GM was worried if they gave anything to, to Twitter, it would end up in the hands of Tesla. And a month ago, you would have thought, yeah, surely not. But now you think, gee, I said, yeah, I certainly wouldn't trust these guys with my data. Not that necessarily going outside these commercial organisations is going to make us safe. There's all sorts of stuff that can go wrong. And make it very clear to people that the data is the product uh, that you're producing for these guys and they're not your friends. I think we are seeing, as, you know, as has happened repeatedly, that uh, this attempt to uh, control and wall in data works for a while and fails. Maybe it will work again in the future, but it's certainly, as a project, looking uh, pretty sorry now. I mean, I, I get the impression Instagram is also just the takeover by influencers has sort of undermined its usefulness for other purposes. So... Is this the, the tragedy of the commons, though? Well, it's the opposite, in a sense, because, yeah. because okay. data is the opposite of the commons. It's, it's mm. as I say, it's we have a, a store in Australia, the magic pudding, and the thing about the magic pudding is uh, you can cut as much off the magic pudding and eat it, uh, and it just comes back again. And also, it's whatever kind of pudding you want it to be. If you want you know, Yorkshire pudding, it's Yorkshire pudding. If you want chocolate pudding, it's chocolate pudding. And, of course, the pudding is immensely valuable. The whole point of the story is... If, the bad guys want to capture the pudding so that they can they can control the flow of, of, of pudding and meanwhile the pudding is trying to escape. I guess that's what I meant by tragedy of the commons in the sense that mm. we all have an incentive mm. to keep data as open as possible so people can use it and share it but the marginal benefit to anyone individually is quite small right it, it on a day-to-day -day, doesn't really yeah. affect you right Whereas if you're trying to mm. capture that data and profit from that data, yeah. like, for example, medical records, and there's, there's controversy mm. right now about mm. NHS medical records, yeah. right? So personal motivation to get something done uh, and the resources that they had at their disposal was mm. so much greater than the individual who just thinks about it on yeah. like as something on an aside. So what I mean by tragedy of the commons is the fact that it's something that affects everyone, but mm. not... No, I'm you about it, it's not a great deal, mm. but the people that it make, make who can make a massive benefit from it are the ones who are going to drive it in that direction. Isn't that always going to happen? An important point is outside your totalitarian state, the only real way you can exploit this information is through advertising, broadly defined. You know, if you ask the question, you know, supposing I had, I had all the medical records of everybody in England, well, I could certainly use a lot of it to sell them medicine, but that's about it. I mean, I'd challenge that. Wouldn't there be benefits in terms of looking at correlations and relationships between care and response between you've got a set of data that tells you a lot right i'm not a medical researcher but i would imagine you well i'm sorry i'm not, I'm not sorry. The there are socially okay. yeah there are plenty of socially beneficial uses but if i want to say how can i how can i make money at people's expense from that data the answer is almost entirely through marketing yeah and that's i mean that's what's that's what's driven facebook and twitter and and all yeah has has been uh, the idea that we can identify markets find them down, sell people stuff, keep them, and then that in turn generates the idea of keeping them engaged, keeping them on the site and so forth. Just do you think that's entirely true though? Imagine if you've got this data set, like, so mm. example, I come from um, Asian background, right? If you have the medical data sets, uh, you're able to see mm. the relationships or how people from my background might respond differently to specific treatments compared to say the wider population. So you could generate benefit from saying, okay, we can have slightly more personalized treatment plans. So therefore mm. the amount of the types of treatments that we will recommend to you are more likely to be effective or do less harm. 
And then I suppose you could monetize that by mm. saying, okay, we can prove that they have better benefit. Yeah. So therefore we will charge for that yeah. service. In theory, that could work. It's not just an advertising yeah. thing, right? In theory, that's probably right. In practice, Google and Facebook and Twitter all are very much advertising. But certainly, certainly that possession of data, when you look at well, what's been used for, I mean, you can use it to price discriminate. So there's bits and pieces, but um, very much to do with commercial control of the platform. So I guess what are your thoughts then? If, you, if the position is that the only way to benefit from this concentration of data is through advertising, potentially, does that mean as a position we take is that we don't have these data sets or do we open them up? What is the way forward? Well, we're certainly across the range of stuff that the Facebooks and Metas and uh, Twitters do. The answer is, the answer is as with software open source. They managed to come in and capture things. I mean, Tim and I were around at the beginning of blogging and I mean, Twitter was basically a microblog, which managed to do a better job of attracting lots of people and people doing it themselves through a service like WordPress. We now have alternatives and, and Twitter has managed to push people on those alternatives. Platforms that charge the creator for the service and let the creator grab a bit back, things like Substack and Patreon and all these things are much more friendly to the creators than, than Twitter and Facebook and, and things of that kind. So I don't have a, an answer right, other than you know, people who care about this stuff should always be looking for these alternatives. And, and right now we're, I think, making good ground. Tim, do you have anything to, to, to say on that? Yeah, I think that's right. I think the options have opened up and, and that alternative model, which I, I guess in a sense, it, it, it's it's still an advertising model, even though, you know, you're selling subscriptions like we do with, yeah. with our Substacks or whatever, you you know, you're, you're marketing yourself. It, it kind of throws it back onto you to do the, the marketing, yeah. which means that your use of the other platforms like Twitter and stuff is obviously a form of advertising, yeah. hoping to generate income through the other platforms like, um, in my case, um, Substack. And I think this is actually one of the things that's been probably a bit neglected in the general public discussion of what's happening with Twitter is that Twitter had become something of a cornerstone of that economy, you know, as the portal into other users created audiences paying audiences um, and gathered subscribers and stuff like that so if twitter falls apart it probably kicks a big hole in um in that part of the market the trend is more away from as john said more away from that walled garden approach which is unsatisfactory i think to most users especially users who want to you know work professionally on those platforms um, it's much more attractive to be on something uh, like Substack than, than to trying to generate a customer base through Facebook and Twitter and monetize it somehow through maybe selling advertising on a mm. website or something like that. These newer platforms are, are a much easier way of, of monetizing that sort of work. John, I was going to, I just thought to myself, I've been talking about your thoughts on data and information and the concentration of information. I haven't given you the chance to explain what what that actually is and what your thoughts are on that and what your what your concerns were and what your writing has recently been, been about about that. Well, I mean, so I'm an economist and so I'm interested in you know, what's been happening to the economy. And one of the things that seems to be happening is that um, investment is declining and that's because you know, although, you know, these, although Facebook and these people are capturing a lot, they're not really capturing more than a tiny fraction of what's being generated. And so the information economy, I think, is presenting this huge challenge 
huge challenge to, to capitalism, really, that uh, the more people are working and generating something, which essentially once it's created is free, the less the idea of when you buy it, you make something and you sell it. And that's that. That is the model of the market. You, you make something, you take the market, you sell it to somebody, they have it, you don't have it. When you say, well, look, I, I, we generate this podcast and for, you know, for whatever motive we have, and once it's created, everybody in the world can have it and, and we, you know, it goes out there. We can try and persuade some of them to give us a little bit of money but or we can stick an ad on it and, and try and persuade somebody to give that. But um, uh, that this structure, I think, has really helped us to explain paradoxical features of the economy, that we feel as if all this stuff is happening, that there's this massive progress going on. But when you look at the market economy statistics, they say we're, we're in this epic of stagnation. And this is something that you think we need to solve or we need to think about? We need to recognise, I think, is the first point, that we've still got a bunch of politicians who are nostalgic for, well, in our case in Australia, that made things, which was true about the time Tim and I were born, at which time, of course, politicians then were nostalgic for an Australia that grew things. 60 years ago, we actually were making things uh, when Tim and I and our current Prime Minister were, were, were born. And we're still thinking in terms of those categories when the most new stuff that's happening in the economy is outside that. And part of that is a breakdown, which work from home accelerates in various ways, a breakdown of, of the whole capitalist distinction or industrial society distinction between home and work. That before industry came along, your garden was outside your house, you, you grew the food there. If you were a spinner and weaver, you, you did your work in your house. There was no real distinction. We made this sharp distinction, which is, has broken down, and, and we also, as I say, went from then a subsistence economy to one where what you did was make stuff, sell it, and then use that money to buy things. We're seeing a change, I think, ultimately of that degree of significance as, as we move into a situation where most of what we do is to do with information. Yeah, it was really interesting. One of the things I hadn't thought about it before when you until you mentioned it was the idea of services being split between human services um and information services um and i suppose human services has a direct benefit and it's a one it's a one-to-one -one thing so if i go and take care of someone mm. i can't scale that, and that yeah that's just somebody else can't take the care i've just given them and give it to yeah. someone else right it's, it's done it's that's right. whereas information services so like you said we're writing this blog or creating this blog we can make any many number of copies as we wanted to and, and, and share it and people can do the same right and then you think as a result of that you believe that measuring the increase in the productivity economy is difficult. There isn't any mm. technically. Is that is that what is that what you're saying? Or am I yeah. I mean I did some stuff reflect on this a few years ago and somebody was calculating there was more data created every day than had been generated in the entirety of human history before that. And of course a large portion of that was cat videos, uh, but measured in bits. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you had this huge amount and of course that has just uh, increased over and over again since then. And so if you try and value this thing in the way we want, one way to do this is say, well, what would it have cost us to produce this podcast 50 years ago? And the answer is essentially we would have had to deploy the entire resources. Of, so what you have is a situation where some things have been magnified immeasurably, which is information. Some things a lot like manufactured goods that they're massively cheaper than they used to be. And then you have this uh, human services sector, which is still very, very difficult. It sounds like to me the tooling that we have in economics to me to measure where we are today or where we're heading isn't there. 
right? So if we measure things like GDP yeah. or number of widgets produced or pay people yeah. like that, based on what you've just said, well, actually, that's those are no longer the the, the correct measure. Yeah. So we've we've achieved a baseline level of prosperity. The challenge whether or not we, yeah. we distribute it yeah. appropriately is a, is another question. But what mm. needs to happen? In economics. An important point about GDP is its great achievement was in the industrial economy to avoid double counting. So when you had the old style of stuff, somebody dug something up or threw it, turned it into a manufactured product and sold it, what you had to do both to run a taxation system and to measure the economy was to net all that out every stage. And that's why we have value-added taxes, in fact, for all, is precisely that. That you say you don't tax a um, baker on the, on, on the amount of bread they produce, you net out the wheat and stuff that went into it and tax the farmer on that. And so GDP was designed precisely to, to overcome that problem, which is a problem that doesn't arise in any of the service economy. It doesn't arise in the human services stuff because essentially all the work has been done. You know, the, the physical inputs are, are essentially unimportant in most of it uh, and doesn't arise even less in the information economy. So we have this number which is really... Yeah, you know, just becoming less and less relevant, and we don't really know what to do about it. Before before <laughs> I before we wrap up, is there any any websites you think listeners might want to visit or books they should read that they might want to learn some more about? Yeah, well, our friend Google, which I've been bagging out, or <laughs> DuckDuckGo if you prefer, finds me. Tim has some recent books that are probably more interesting than uh, than mine. So, well, I do have a couple of books that cover these um, these topics, and they're Googleable and available through amazon other information is out there thank you guys thank you really appreciate it i hope, hope you i found it really interesting i mean there's lots of other questions i could ask actually i'll probably just message you guys directly i find it i found it really interesting like some of the positions that we were taking but hopefully it's been good for you and you've enjoyed yeah. it too um, it has thank you very much thank you thanks thank for your you. time all right take care okay bye-bye okay bye-bye